Uh, Richard, Richard and friends, uh, Eddie Morgan uh, came out as gay when he was 70 years old. He came out as a SNP supporter when he was dead. <laughs> but uh, luckily for us all, <clears throat> Eddie uh, came out as lots of other things uh, during his uh, remarkable life. He came out as a, a tribune for the, the poor and disadvantaged, as a, as a believer in radical social change. He came out, of course, as a staunch uh, Glaswegian, and I, I, I'm grateful for for this story, which I'm about to retail, which, uh, which summarises the extent to which uh, Eddie would defend his native city. Uh, a few years ago, the, the Eddie Morgan archive was opened at the Scottish Poetry Library, but Eddie wasn't uh, convinced he should go uh, because uh, he thought the archive should have been in Glasgow. <laughs> <laughs> So in, in the end, showing a, a, a political deafness of touch, he decided to go, after all it was his archive, <laughs> but he wore a T-shirt under his jacket with a Tunnock's caramel wafer on it, <laughs> together with the slogan, Glasgow takes the biscuit. <laughs> now, Eddie was uh, well known for his taste in T-shirts, <laughs> but uh, it was his way of uh, ensuring uh, that uh, Glasgow was properly represented at the opening and uh, a desire, of course, to have the last word. I uh, found myself thinking about that story and uh, as to this uh, day which we decided to vote to, to, to housing that uh, uh, I was delivering this lecture in Edinburgh tonight and but knowing what uh, Eddie had done with opening his archive, I, I sort of swithered, shall I wear the Tunnock's T-shirt? <laughs> but I decided instead to, uh, to go to Glasgow this afternoon to, to open a, a fantastic uh, uh, combined heat and power project, uh, which I'll describe later on. So that was my particular uh, uh, attempt to, to reconcile my presence in Edinburgh with uh, Eddie, who most certainly would have said, despite his love of shelter, that this lecture should have been held in Glasgow uh, tonight. <laughs> now, Auden wrote of Yeats after he died, he became his admirers. And of course, what he was doing was describing how a, a poet's words live on in the hearts and minds of the people who read them even after the, the poet's death. Now, Eddie Morgan had legions of admirers in Scotland and around the world. We admired his intelligence, his wit, his compassion which is so evident from his poetry. These qualities made him an overwhelming, obvious, or resounding candidate to be Scotland's first Macca, or, or national poet, when the, the post was first created uh, after devolution. And of course, his friend, Liz Lockhead, is, uh, is now our Macca uh, on Eddie's death. Uh, and they make it a great honour to be asked to give this inaugural lecture uh, in Eddie Morgan's honour. Uh, now, Richard has just quoted the second of Eddie's Glasgow sonnets. Uh, I'm delighted it was you that uh, quoted it. Uh, I might have been tweeted if I had quoted uh, uh, the first line of the second sonnet. Uh, anyone said that he'd used a, a Shelter Scotland report uh, as one of his source materials for his first uh, Glasgow sonnet, which describes a tenement where four stories have no windows left to smash of that black block condemned to stand, not crash. 
It's one uh, indication of how strongly Eddie Gaysworth supported the work done by Shelton Scotland, both in campaigning for a fairer Scotland and, of course, equally importantly, in providing housing advice and assistance for those who require it. And I'm grateful, very grateful indeed, uh, for Shelter for organising this evening's lecture. 100 years ago, uh, in September 1912, the Asquith government uh, established a, a Royal Commission into Housing in Scotland. The Commission didn't re report until 1917, but when it did, it was damning in its conclusions. It spoke of gross overcrowding, occupation of one-room houses by large families, plotted classes of slums in the great cities, and concluded by saying that the state must at once take steps to make good the housing shortage and to improve housing conditions. And so one year before Eddie Morgan's birth in 1919, the Housing and Planning Act, the Addison Act as it was known, was passed. And that was followed by the Wheatley Act of 1924, which improved the subsidies for house building and the Greenwood Act of 1930. Today, incidentally, when the when I uh, visited that uh, that uh, combined heat and power scheme in uh, Glasgow, that one of the organising uh, organisations, one of the associations, was the John Wheatley, uh, the Wheatley organisation, and one of the participating companies uh, was the was SSE, Scottish and Southern Electricity. Uh, it's true, of course, ladies and gentlemen, that of all the the great left thinkers, practitioners, politicians who emerged in the the interwar period, uh, the ones who achieved the, the most substantial results uh, were Tom Johnson, whose uh, portrait adorns uh, the living room in Butte House, who founded, among other things, the hydroelectric board, which eventually became Scottish and Southern Electricity, uh, and John Wheatley, who was responsible for the start of the, the housing revolution, which changed the conditions uh, that, uh, that people were facing in Scotland. For decades, people in Scotland talked about living in Wheatley houses. The legislation that followed from the investigation had a major impact. Professor Tom Devine has written of the 1919 Act, no single piece of legislation has contributed so much to the shape and development of urban Scotland in the 20th century. Prior to the First World War, only 1% of families in Scotland were housed by local authorities. But during the, the period between the wars, 70% of the new homes built in Scotland were owned by local authorities. And immediately after World War II, that became 80% of the homes that were built. Now, these uh, houses were significant improvements and uh, what had preceded them, the high-density tenements, uh, the uh, two-storey semi-detached houses became more normal. Many people would argue, incidentally, that the, the houses which were built through these housing acts were a, a great improvement on those which succeeded it, as well as those that preceded it. But uh, certainly nobody would claim that the 1912 Royal Commission and the Addison Act achieved all of their aims. Uh, as the Glasgow Sonnet show, written 50 years later, uh, the homes fit for heroes' vision after World War I was never truly realised. However, progress, substantial progress, enormous progress, amazing progress was made. And perhaps most importantly, out of that, a, a fundamental principle was established and accepted in Scotland that the standard of housing reflects on society as a whole and that the state, through one means or another, has a role to play in securing good and healthy homes for all. Now, this month, 
just uh, over a century after that Royal Commission was first established, as Richard noted, we are able to mark an achievement. It is one of the most significant commitments ever made by government to assist homeless people. Last Wednesday, the, the Scottish Parliament passed the legislation that means that from the end of this year, we will meet as a parliament our historic 2012 homelessness commitment, which was set out first in the 2003 legislation. Now, this evening, I, I want to explain why the 2012 target is important in its own right, because of what it means to thousands of vulnerable individuals who will benefit from it. But I also want to set it in the context as part of a a wider programme to prevent homelessness, to increase the supply of affordable housing and to ensure high standards in social housing. And finally, I'll talk about the, the commitment to social justice, which has characterised, in my estimation, the Scottish Parliament since its, uh, since its uh, reconvening in 1999. The secondary legislation passed on Wednesday has the effect of removing the current distinction between the priority cases of homelessness, such as households with dependent children, and those that have had until now only been entitled to temporary accommodation, such as single people. It's worth reflecting for a moment just what the accomplishment of that target means. In 2002, for example, around 10,000 households were classed as non-priority homeless cases. That's worth thinking about it, the, the concept of someone being a non-priority homeless person uh, to realise what a front that categorisation is uh, to a civilised society. All homelessness must be of a high priority. But in 2002, 10,000 households each year had no guarantee of settled housing. And the damaging consequences that followed on from that and their self-esteem, employment consequences, their health, it were there for all to see. Now, over the last 10 years, as the local authorities around Scotland have prepared to meet their new legal duty, the number of non-priority cases has fallen to around 3,000 a year. Next year, by the Act, it will be reduced to zero. All people who unintentionally become homeless will have the right to settled accommodation. Now, the 2003 Act was initially a result of the work by the Scottish Homelessness Task Force. Shelter Scotland, of course, were represented in that task group. I'm delighted that one of the other members, Professor Susan Fitzpatrick, now of Herrick Watt University, is also here this evening. It was enacted with cross-party support under a previous administration and implemented by successive governments working together with local authorities and organisations such as Shelter. The Act is now internationally recognised as a landmark piece of legislation. It was one of the finest examples of the Scottish Parliament using its powers to meet progressive aspirations of the people. However, although the fulfilment of that 2012 commitment is worth celebrating, it should be seen as marking a, a milestone rather than a destination. The 2012 commitment, after all, determines how we should treat people who have become homeless. However, it's much better for society if we can prevent or, or stop people becoming homeless in the first place. Since 2010, five regional housing options hubs, as they have become known, have been established across Scotland as part of a, a new approach to preventing homelessness. The hubs work together to share good practice and to help households who are in danger of becoming homeless. Rather than only processing an application for homelessness, 
Local authorities now consider all of the household circumstances in order to see how they can be best supported. We have to monitor fully the impact of the hubs over time. However, the results so far of this approach, this emphasis on prevention, suggests that it is working. Over the last several years, while recorded homelessness in England has increased, in Scotland the number of people assessed as homelessness fell by 17% uh, between 2010 and 11, from 41,000 to 34,000. And I've checked these statistics very carefully, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> uh, and figures last month indicate that in 2012-13, there's been a further 10% drop in the same period last year. Now, it still means, of course, that far, far too many people are becoming homeless each year. But the trend, particularly against the prevailing circumstances, is an encouraging one. And combined with that emphasis on reducing homelessness, yes, we are also increasing the number of affordable homes. By the end of the Parliament, we intend to deliver at least 30,000 new affordable homes, two-thirds of which will be for social rent. Almost 7,000 homes were built last year. That's above the target, and it's about 40% more than in 2006-07. Of these 7,000 affordable homes, 1,000 were council houses. And then, uh, I know that everybody's inter interested in figures. I can confirm that that marks a 63,100 percentage increase <laughs> on the annual rate of construction under the previous administration when six council houses were built in four years, all of which were in Shetland. Well, Tavis Scott was Deputy First Minister, was he not? <laughs> but nonetheless, the housing council housing, which had dominated the landscape of housing after the First World War and the Second World War, had shrunk to effective zero, to near zero, uh, and now is undergoing a revival. And that's the circumstances which allowed that revival to take place, must surely be the decision to end the right to buy for new tenants and new houses. Uh, councils are infinitely more likely to be interested in building new homes now they know that the homes cannot be sold. And council house construction last year, therefore, was at its highest level for some 20 years. Now that's economically important. It supports the construction industry. It boosts overall economic demand. But the £760 million, which will be invested in affordable housing over the next three years, will support around 8,000 full-time equivalent jobs in the construction and related sectors each year. More importantly, however, the provision of a decent affordable accommodation, accommodation is also one of the hallmarks of a humane society. And as part of that, in addition to increasing the supply of housing, we want to maintain and improve its standard. The Social Housing Charter, which came into effect this year, has an important role in this. The Charter sets clear standards and outcomes which can be enforced by the new Scottish Housing Regulator. By doing so, it gives more power to tenants, while also enabling landlords to explain what they are achieving for their customers. There's also an important issue relating to sustainability when we think about standards. As I mentioned earlier, today I visited the, the Cube Housing Association in Glasgow to see the district heating network that they have uh, installed for the 1,500 homes in the Wineford housing estate in Mary Hill. This is a combined heat and power system at the edge of the estate, provides hot water and electricity, 
All of the houses in the state <coughs> have now been fitted with uh, insulation. It's a great example of work that brings multiple benefits. It supports employment over the last year as the work's been ongoing. It provides warm, dry houses. It reduces overall ca carbon emissions and, very importantly, uh, energy bills. The wine for estate is likely to reduce fuel bills to the residents by up to 25%. There are some drawbacks, of course, to this great initiative. As you'll know, the wine for estate is right next door to the, the flats that, uh, that uh, is, the, uh, is the venue for location for the BBC Still Game series. Uh, and these flats are also being clad with insulation, which means, of course, that Jack and Victor won't be able to reasonably moan about their house being frozen in this year's Hogmanay special. So on the one hand, <clears throat> this amazing scheme provides uh, affordable heat and power uh, for 2,000 houses across our estate. On the other hand, one of the plots of uh, a great television series will have to be amended. <laughs> but uh, while I was in Mary Hill this afternoon, in due homage to, to Eddie's Glaswegian origins, I was able to announce a further investment of funding to promote district heating. This funding provides capital grants for private homeowners at the estate to enable them to benefit from the district heating scheme. It allows us also to bring forward and extend the district heat network being installed for the Commonwealth Games village in the east end of Glasgow, which will become housing after uh, the Games. And it provides a, a grant to help Fife Council Renewable District Heating Network in Dunfermline, so as it also covers Queen Margaret Hospital, an example of how public services and housing and investment uh, should combine together uh, to give an effectively uh, heated hospital as well as effectively heated homes. Uh, the funding announced today is just part of a much wider programme. More than 400,000 homes have benefited from cavity wall and loft insulation measures in the last four years. We're investing a quarter of a billion pounds in this spending period to make Scotland's housing warmer and more energy efficient. Additionally, we've recently announced the Warm Homes Fund to provide loans for renewable energy schemes promoted by local authorities and housing associations. The contrast <coughs> with what's happening elsewhere should be evident. Funding in England has just been cut from 350 million to zero in terms of the fuel poverty initiatives. And that's at a time when energy prices are affecting household incomes, when the construction sector needs to be supported, and when carbon emissions need to be reduced. We will continue to maintain and take a different approach to housing, eh, to sustainability, eh, and to protecting people as far as is within our power eh, to the consequences of the decisions that are being taken currently at Westminster. When you address homelessness and <coughs> promoting affordable housing, Scotland has clearly benefited from the Scottish Parliament's ability under successive administrations to adjust policies to, to suit Scottish needs. <coughs> and I want to, in terms of this uh, lecture, to develop that in terms of a number of other policy areas. Last month, the, the Scottish Government instituted a the living wage of £7.45 pence per hour covering the 160,000 people in Scotland working for the National Health Service, central government, agencies and public bodies. The decision this year will benefit 3,000 people and will help address in-work poverty. There's a whole raft of measures as part of what I describe as our policy of the social wage, a part of a contract between the people of Scotland 
under government. The idea of a social wage <clears throat> is the idea of providing, defending, extending core universal services, rights and benefits. These include university tuition, prescriptions, personal care for the elderly, a, a council tax freeze to protect household budgets, a guarantee of no compulsory redundancies in the Scottish Government and Health Service. Incidentally, the last of these doesn't mean that there's no reduction in public service workers. But what it does mean, the no compulsory redundancies pledge, is it gives security to people in planning their household budgets. It is a significant step at a time when the Scottish Government's non-health revenue budget is being cut by 14% in real terms over the next two years. Now, the people who benefit from the social wage, the benefits to <clears throat> old age pensioners are the right to travel. Uh, and I'm interested and I'm constantly surprised by being told that the trouble with the, the free bus pass for pensioners is that there's lots and lots of millionaires who are busy travelling on the buses uh, around Scotland. Uh, well, in Edinburgh, where the bus service is absolutely fantastic, that's perhaps the case. Uh, but uh, I've still to meet these uh, extraordinary people who are travelling in the public uh, transport on their bus pass, but they're actually millionaires. It's not just the right to travel, it's the freedom from fear of not being able to fund a care package in infirmity. The benefit to society, of course, is fewer geriatric beds at enormous cost in our hospitals as we instead fund people to stay in their own home through the Free Personal Care Initiative. The right of, uh, of free medicine, apart from being the original vision of Naren Bevan in the, in the health service, of course, means that people on £16,000 a year don't have to choose between their prescribed medicines, don't have to choose which medicine they're going to take, uh, as any pharmacist would tell you was happening under prescription charges. And the right of tuition fees. In a year where we now know that applications to <coughs> universities in England declined by 13%, that's one three, 13% this year, while applications to Scottish universities are at record levels. The right to a free education, which affects, of course, 26,000 college students, as well as university students. The right to free education is a contract which enables people to earn and redeem their obligation to society that they benefit from training in terms of a fair taxation system that allows them to repay the benefits they've obtained through their education. Now, we intend to extend the principle of the social wage to families needing childcare by enshrining in law the commitment of three- and four-year-olds and all looked-after two-year-olds will receive a minimum of 600 hours of early learning and childcare. And that will sit alongside the Family Nurse Partnership Programme and Family Centres, which have a growing role in providing infrastructure and support to young mothers and families. But the work to, to build a fairer nation under this Scottish Parliament and its predecessors is now under very substantial threat. The UK Government's Welfare Reform Programme and I have to remind myself to stop calling it the Welfare Reform Programme, because whatever else it might be, I mean, reform suggests this is a, a long-called-for crusade to, to iron out inequality in the system. But the welfare changes, reductions, cuts, have the potential to be devastating for the income levels of the most vulnerable members of society. I, I've been an MP in 
MSP, a constituency member, for some 25 years. Uh, I have, over that period, uh, managed uh, to build up something of a reputation as a constituency member of Parliament. Most of the reputation actually belongs to Citizens Advice Scotland, uh, because I found out from a, an early period in my work as a constituency MP that without Citizens Advice uh, being available in Peterhead, then I couldn't possibly, with the, the staff available and me available, processed the number of uh, calls on my attention. But the Citizens Advice Scotland were able to provide the support mechanism so we could work in an orchestration. So that organisation I respect enormously over the last quarter of a century for keeping me in a job as a constituency member of Parliament. They warn that the welfare changes are going to have a catastrophic effect on the lives of hundreds of thousands of Scots. Shelter Scotland, another organisation which I respect deeply, <laughs> in evidence to the Scottish Parliament's Welfare Committee in May, argued that the first and second wave of cuts brought in by the Welfare Reform Act will seriously undermine the housing safety net. Last week, Crisis, the charity for single homeless people, attacked the, the UK government's proposals to abolish housing benefit for the under-25s, saying that, quote, it would be unworkable and irresponsible to withdraw housing benefit from under-25 at a time of high rents and youth unemployment. So, it cannot be otherwise. If you plan a, a change which is going to remove by 2014 some 10% of the income, of the poorer sections of society, uh, then the consequences uh, of that are going to be very, very substantial. Consequences to the people affected, consequences to the economy, because whatever else uh, the uh, poorer sections of society is, are that they are, are not people who tend to, to save their income. So the result in broad economic terms will be to accent the deficient demand that the economy is suffering from at the, at the present moment. But the moral effects, the significant effects, the social effects are going to be huge and substantial and how can they be otherwise when that level and percentage of income is going to be removed from many of the poorer members of the community. Now, it's not just talk from the Scottish Parliament, the Scottish Government. We are doing what we can to mitigate some of the effects of the welfare reform. And it is a mitigation because I'm going to make absolutely no pretense that we can wave away the social and welfare changes that are taking place. But we have jointly with COSLA agreed to meet the costs of the UK government's cut to council tax benefits, protecting more than half a million people on low incomes across Scotland. If you'd asked me to, to say it, I would never have thought that a Conservative government would have, uh, would have willingly devolved anything uh, to the Scottish Parliament. And so I was surprised a, a couple of years back to, to find out that uh, the devolution of council tax benefit was very much in their plans. Uh, and then I discovered it was to be a devolution of council tax benefit with a 10% cut. Uh, they were doing the same thing to the English local authorities, incidentally, as they were doing to the Scottish Parliament. And then it all made sense that the, the circumstances in which the Conservative government will devolve a major issue of policy to Scotland is if they can attach a 10% cut to that devolution. Well, jointly with COSLA, we've agreed to meet the cost of that cut. So alone in these islands, council tax benefit will be maintained uh, for people in low incomes, for half a million people in low incomes across Scotland. 
We've created the Scottish Welfare Fund, reinstating the cuts to the community care grants and crisis grants made by Westminster, and that will protect an additional 100,000 vulnerable Scots. But make no mistake, although we can take some steps to mitigate the impact of welfare reform, this is mitigation. It is not a solution. The situation with housing benefits is particularly ridiculous. The largest difficulty with costs in rising rental prices is obviously in the City of London and other aspects of the southeast of England. Housing benefit expenditure in Scotland in real terms increased by less than half the rate of the UK as a whole. In Northern Ireland, where welfare is devolved, the Assembly there will continue to pay the housing element of the universal credit directly to housing providers rather than paying it to tenants, and it has been widely and rightly praised for doing so. With the same powers, we could take some steps at least to protect vulnerable tenants and safeguard housing provider incomes. But this underlines the absurdity of housing benefits being reserved. However, the overall impact of welfare reform demonstrates a wider point, that the way uh, to uh, ensure that we have a welfare system which matches our values and priorities is to take control of that welfare system. It was the argument uh, in which Eddie Morgan believes strongly, and that is that the people best placed to make decisions about Scotland's future are people who choose to live and work in Scotland. Nobody will care more about this country's future, and nobody will care more about how to create a just society. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to close by <coughs> quoting uh, another one of uh, Eddie's poems. <coughs> this is a, a poem which does contain a number of four-letter words, but none of them are swear words. This is what he said to the, uh, the Parliament uh, as it moved from the, the Church of Scotland General Assembly Hall to the Holyrood Building in 2004. Eddie said, We give you our consent to govern. Don't pocket it and ride away. We give you our dearest, deepest wish to govern well. Don't say we have no mandate to be bold. I think setting and achieving the 2012 homelessness target is a good illustration of the fact the Scottish Parliament on occasion has accepted a mandate to be bold. I'm sure that Eddie, if I'd been able to ask him as the macker at the present moment, and I said, Eddie, do you fancy writing a poem about that act? Maybe uh, sonnet number three. <laughs> Uh, then I think he may well have uh, agreed. And what he would have produced was not something which said this was the end of the story or the achievement of all the aspirations. He would have produced something which said, look, this is, a, this is something which should be congratulated, and then he would have chided us for the things that we weren't doing. But the Scottish Parliament, when it acts like this, places an emphasis on social justice, on protecting the, the common weal of Scotland. In a small nation such as ours, deprivation and disadvantage are no great distance from any of us. There's no community which is a huge distance from another. In a small nation, just like a village society, it is difficult, though not impossible, but difficult to walk by on the other side. It's more natural to extend a helping hand. So the Scottish Parliament has used its powers, by and large, and this is a parliament as a whole I'm talking about, not one particular party, for progressive purposes. Not just in setting and achieving the 2012 homelessness target, 
but also introducing the right to personal care, ending tuition fees and protecting a national health service, which is worthy of the name National Health Service. It has, like Eddie Morgan, rejected the idea of uh, communities where, in the words that Richard quoted earlier, the same wanes never make the grade, the same grey street sends back the ball it throws. My view is when people decide in two years' time, one of the arguments will sway them to vote yes is the argument that independence will give the powers we need to address inequality. The Scottish Parliament has made a start in building a fairer Scotland, one where all Wayans do have a fair chance to make the grade. With the right powers, we could come closer to completing that job uh, and live up to the challenging legacy of Eddie Morgan. Thank you very much.